0: Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Dei Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Today, I said we'll be taking a look at Psalm 47, so if you have not simply opened up yet, I would ask you to do so and to follow along with us as we make our way through. Now, Psalm 47 is what's called an enthronement psalm, and the concept behind an enthronement psalm is relatively simple in that it celebrates the installment of a king. Now, in this particular psalm, we find that the king is none other than God himself. It is God's throne, essentially, that God is ascending to, but it's not merely limited to this geographical location that we know of Israel, it's all the earth. And that's why these people are celebrating. It's in light of this fact that God has his throne over all the earth that the psalmist calls every single man, woman, and child on the face of the planet towards worship. He calls them to praise God, and again, the simple reason for this is that he is the king, and therefore he is deserving of praise. That is really the central message of this psalm today. God is king, and therefore all of humanity is commanded to worship him as king. In the midst of this call, however, we find several different proclamations about God's kingdom and rule, but they all centralize on this idea that God is king. Now, one of the ones that I already mentioned is simply that God reigns over all the earth. A second one, which we will see in this passage today, is that God reigns over all peoples, which I've already hinted at as well. Thirdly, God reigns over Israel in particular. And fourthly, God reigns from his heavenly throne over all of creation. Now, it's from the recognition of God's sovereign rule as the king here, as the one over all things in creation that the psalmist calls Every person to sing his praises. The psalm ultimately culminates in this reality. It brings this reality to a burning focus for us. God is king over all at this very moment, and he deserves a praise in the here and now, and yet that kingship has certain unavoidable ramifications to it. It has necessary consequences, in other words. God will undoubtedly remain king, he will undoubtedly rule over every aspect of creation today. And yet, with absolute authority, this rule will be realized in full at the end of all days, meaning that there is not one square inch of creation over which God has not declared mine. When Christ takes the throne, this will find the fullness of God's reign on earth. In other words, this psalm ultimately anticipates the reality of God's kingdom being brought on earth as it is in heaven, being brought in full one great and glorious day, and therefore the ultimate response of all creation, the necessary response of all creation, is worship. And so look with me now, we're going to start right away in verse 1, and I want you to see that immediately the psalmist simply gives a command here to every man, woman, and child to worship the king. He begins his hymn with a command, to all people on the face of the earth, he says, Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. So notice immediately, the scene simply extends well beyond this nation of Israel that he's speaking to. All of creation is brought into focus. Every tribe, tongue, and nation are invited to praise this one true God. They are invited, in fact, to clap their hands. So don't let anybody tease you for clapping your hands, Beloved. <laughs> The call to worship, though, is not one where people come with hesitancy. That's the wonderful thing about this, is there's actually much excitement and joy by which they come to before the throne of God. They are coming before the one to whom all praise and glory and honor is ultimately due. But hear me on this. The anticipated result at verse 1 here is that they will actually obey they will actually praise God. That's the anticipated result here. They will pay homage to the king. It's not a negotiable thing, by the way. It's not merely an invitation where they're free to consider whether or not they want to worship this king. It is a command. It is something all the earth is literally expected to actually do, and yet they are to do so with much joy. Notice what he says here, though, in the second half of verse 1. It's not merely that they come and clap their hands or make a great noise. No, he says in verse 1, or I should say the second half of verse 1, shout to God with a voice of joy. The scene here, if you picture it, is is really anything but reserved. It's not that these people are coming on a Sunday morning and just kind of hesitantly clapping along with the beat. No, these people are making a tumultuous noise. They have everything thrown into it. It's a ringing cry of triumph. It's a ringing cry of victory. And the reason for that, again, is that God is king. They make an uproar like the earth has never seen before because God is the one on the throne. Now, the reason they are to make this uproar, again, is is relatively simple, and I'm going to be beating this to death all throughout this psalm today. God is king. God is king, and this is ultimately to be their joy. And for these people, it is their joy. But I find this to be one of those utterly fascinating teachings of Scripture that strikes literally at the heart of all mankind. It speaks to our very purpose. The age-old question that has plagued mankind from the beginning of time itself is, why are we here? Why are we here? What is our purpose? Why, out of the vastness of the universe, are we stuck on this one planet that is perfectly designed to sustain all of life? What is our purpose? Well, many have come up with all sorts of justifying or self-justifying reasons for why we exist. But again, the psalmist's answer is very, very simple when you get down to the end of it. You and I are created to worship. All of creation is created to testify of the glory of God. From the single-celled organism to the great humpback whale, from the human being to every spiritual being, all of it was created with a very singular purpose to bring God the glory. The purpose of all mankind simply folds into this reality where the purpose of all things that have ever existed on the face of this earth are to bring God the due or the glory that he is due. They begin, they culminate, and they all terminate or end in the very same spot. God is worthy of all praise and honor and glory for he is the king. He is the king who reigns supreme above it all. He is the rightful king, even on the throne. And beloved, he is a good king. Thus, when the psalmist begins this with a hymn of praise or command here, he rightly begins it. He rightly commands all of the earth, come before your king and worship him as he is due. And again, the anticipated result of all mankind is that they will actually obey. But they obey with joy. That's the neat thing, is they obey with joy. Now, I want you to notice the psalmist gives us a reason for why We worship God. He actually gives us four that we're going to see through this psalm. But every single one of them roll into the simple reality that I have already stated. God is king. He has ascended the throne above it all. He is the one who reigns supreme. He is the one who is worthy of all praise. And he is just simply getting what he is owed. Now, I find it utterly fascinating that the psalmist's answer here to why God is worthy of praise and honor and glory is answered by saying he is the king. I find it fascinating. Is it's much like saying God is worthy because God is worthy. This is what we just don't comprehend. He is worthy just because he is the very foundation of what worthiness even means. He is good because he is the foundation of all that is good. He is king because he sits and reigns over everything. He is the embodiment of all of these things. And here we are, insignificant creatures, asking why when all of creation itself shouts, magnify the king. The psalmist just doesn't play our conventional rules, does he? He's just not interested in it. He doesn't find it interesting to convince you why God is worthy of worship, ultimately. He just simply commands you to worship the king. And he says you're expected to, do, to obey this simply on the basis of the fact that God deserves it because he is the king. He doesn't say you should worship God because he is the perfect embodiment of love. He is so, so good and kind to us. He gives us good gifts. He shows us far better than we could ever hope for or deserve. And this is all undoubtedly true. And we know this from Scripture. These statements are true. They are certain without a shadow of a doubt. God is infinitely kind and good and gives us far greater than we ever deserve. But here, the foundational reason for why God deserves the glory is that he is altogether glorious in his rule as the king. To fail to honor God as king then, at least how the psalmist paints it, is that you are in denial of of reality itself. You are simply denying reality. And this really cuts to the very heart of things, doesn't it? It paints a vivid picture for us for why people deny the existence of God and why they fail to submit to him as king. It's not because they pursued things with this utmost intellectual rigor that they, of all people, of all time, have somehow managed to be wiser than the rest of them, or even wiser than God. It's not because God has failed to be good or kind or gracious and loving. It is not because they have figured out a better sense of morality than He. It's not because you and I need to simply prove God's existence to them. No, the reason behind all of it is that they hate the very idea of giving God the glory that He is due. They hate it. That's how Scripture portrays this reality. In the innermost parts of their hearts, the answer for why so many people reject their Creator and fail to love Him as He is due is not because God is unworthy. It is not because God has failed to show them that He is worthy. Rather, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1, they have suppressed the truth of God's worthiness in unrighteousness. God has clearly revealed that He is worthy, He has clearly revealed Himself in all of creation. And the reason that he has done that is so that all are without excuse. And yet, what does the debased mind do but turn and give glory to literally everything else in all creation except for the one who created it? Now, think of yourself before you even knew Christ. I mean, this was you, this was me. The only reason why we came to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is because God, the sovereign one, opened up our minds to understand it. So when you get down to the base level of everything, the only reason why people don't give God the glory that he is due is because they do not wish to submit to the king. They don't need a list of reasons why they are to worship God, according to this psalm. It is self-evident. It is self-evident. But nonetheless, there is a wake-up call here. There's a wake-up call in this psalm, much like there's a wake-up call throughout all of Scripture that just simply declares that God is king, and therefore, we worship him with gladness. God is the king, and therefore, we worship him with much gladness. This is our purpose. This is the reason why we were created. This is the reason for your entire existence, beloved. And I want to simply show you this as we make our way through the rest of the psalm, as he declares that God is King. So look with me now at verse 2, where we see that the Lord Most High reigns over all the earth. This is what the psalmist says here. He says, For the Lord Most High, that is Yahweh Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Now, the title given to God here, that is, Yahweh Most High, is explicit in what it means. It says that Yahweh is literally the highest of highs. He is the highest of all things above all other creation. He is elevated far and above all that was, is, and ever shall come to be. No square inch of creation, in other words, lay outside of his kingship or his kingdom. The very reason, therefore, that God is to be worshipped is because he is above it all. That's what he's saying here. This includes even the earthly kingdoms that he knows so well. Thus, the call to worship is a call to recognize that God is king above it all. It's not that he is going to become king or that he somehow has to compete with the various little kingdoms of this earth and vie for power. No, he has ultimate authority already established. He already possesses the earth and all that it contains. But notice what he says about this king, right? He immediately makes this statement. God already has everything. He says, this king of all the earth is to be feared. You are to be afraid of him. The idea goes well beyond a simple matter of wisdom, right? In wisdom literature, you find that the concept of the fear of the Lord actually means reverence or respect for God's authority. But here, it actually means An idea of being terrified. In the purest sense, it conveys the idea that the one who holds uh, ultimate authority and power over all things, that you ought to have a healthy, sober fear as you approach him, especially if you are one who is his enemy. If you look at this in the scope of mankind, what he's saying to these people, these kingdoms, these various cultures around the world is that in all of your glory, you belong to God. You are not at liberty to do as you please. You kings and rulers are not at liberty to rule as you please. You all must submit yourself to God in his ways, for in all things you will give an account. That's the ultimate message being given here. God is the one who owns the kingdoms of the earth. God is the one who owns everything in earth. So, if you are one who owns a kingdom, what that means vicariously is that you have a derived authority. You have a borrowed kingdom. And so the nations must recognize this wonderfully simple truth. As the ultimate king above all other kings, God has the power. He has the intrinsic right, in other words, to do whatever he pleases, and he does not consult the whims of man and how he should rule. He does not consult them, he doesn't care. What he does do, though, is demand absolute allegiance from every man, woman, and child. For those who fear the Lord, those who respect and reverence and love the Lord, this is an immense comfort because it means, ultimately, that if God owns everything, and he owns even us, that we are safe in his care. I mean, that's that's the comfort here. Those who pay homage to the king will never suffer his wrath. Those who pay homage to the king will never find that another kingdom can topple them so long as God decides that it will not happen. Those who submit themselves to the Lord will find that he is indeed even a friend to them. And that's the incredible thing about it. So You have this God who is over all things, and yet he is your friend if you are in Christ especially. And yet, even those of us who are friends of God, do we not live with an acute awareness that God is infinitely powerful and infinitely mighty beyond our wildest human comprehension? I mean, think of it in the scope of nature alone, right? You have a hurricane that'll literally rip through and rip everything to shreds, and yet that pales in comparison to the sheer might and power of our Lord. We learned in Psalm 46 last week what he lifts his voice and the earth simply melts. That's the idea here. We approach him, therefore, with a sense of holy dread. think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He stood transfixed before the Holy One. And all he could say is, woe is me. In other words, I am utterly undone. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am just undone before you. I have seen the King. I have seen Yahweh of hosts. He was utterly terrified in the presence of the Lord. Every time even an angel appears, what happens? The people fall down in fear, and they are told every single time, do not be afraid. I, I would love to be that guy, by the way, who's just watching that all unfold, and you're like, don't be afraid, it's okay. And you're like, I'm pretty afraid here. Like, I'm, I'm literally terrified. That's, that's the idea of this dread here, that we are to contain and before the infinitely holy one. It's a recognition, Isaiah recognized in a moment what many fail to recognize throughout the duration of their entire lives, and that is, God is holy and man is not. God is holy and mankind is not. And therefore, the only proper response to the sheer magnitude and weight of his awesome holiness, of his infinite holiness, the thrice holiness of this Lord, is to proclaim our unworthiness and his supreme worthiness. In other words, a true biblical fear produces a heart of worship. When you're in awe before your king, you are left with no other regard but to worship. For those who do not fear the Lord as he is due, his absolute power and sovereignty and everything else that is contained within him is a thing of immense terror. It is a terror beyond all other terrors. He retains the power to both destroy body and soul, as Christ says. That's the idea similarly portrayed here. He is poised above the nations. He is poised and ready to pour out his wrath on his great enemies, those who do not approach him with a sense of reverence or fear or dread, even in worship. He stands ready to judge even the kings of all the earth if they do not submit to his rule. If the nations draw near to God, though, and submit to him, they find everything. They find life, they find forgiveness, they find love and hope and even peace and incredible amounts of joy. But if they fail to do so, there's an explicit warning here. God is king. You are not, oh man, but he gives them yet even another reason to worship the king in verse 3. In case that wasn't enough, he says, The Lord Most High reigns over all peoples. Right? He says this in verse 3. Look down with me. He says, He subdues the people under us and the nations under our feet. This is the psalmist talking about Israel here, but the specific context of God's reign is seen in light of the victories that he has given this nation. Now, more than likely, the psalmist is referring to the conquest of Canaan, Right, The Israelites come out of the wilderness and go into the promised land, and this is bringing to mind all of those different victories where the Lord had provided and gone to battle for them. So in every sense, these people, the psalmist and all of Israel, could look back and see that God had delivered them from giants in the land. I mean, literal giants in the land. They had delivered them from the vast number of fierce and mighty warriors who stood against them in all of Canaan and beyond. God toppled the walls of Jericho, Right? He put to death the pagans who worshipped false gods and embraced the ritualistic slaughter of even children. And long before that, God delivered them from Pharaoh in Egypt. So in every single aspect, they're just looking upon all the people that God himself has defeated, and they can say, the nations have been brought under submission to him. The imagery of this, being, or the nations being brought under submission to him, by the way, or being brought under submission to Israel, and placed under their feet picture, or paints a picture of just utter defeat. The, the concept it's actually bringing to mind is that they are at the utter mercy of the Israelites. The Israelites have their foot upon their neck. That's the image being given here. It's not a, a light thing. It's, they have the foot on the neck and their sword, sword in hand, ready to cut it off. And that's exactly what happened as you read the account going through the promised land, isn't it? right? As Joshua and all these men are leading through the promised land and subduing their enemies, whether by death or by service, what did God do? But exalt Israel, and he debased their enemies. And that's what these people are reflecting on here. And yet the undertones of this, there's this undeniable reality that they're alluding to. God has not yet subdued all the nations underfoot, The implicit warning, then, for those who reject God as king, again, is that he is king regardless of whether or not they submit. Think of all the people who would tell God what's what if they could see him face to face. Think of all those brave and yet foolish souls who have uttered blasphemies in their murderous hearts and say they will never bow the knee. I was that man at one point. I know some of you were right along there with me. All right, These are the very same ones that he depicts will not have a choice when the day of reckoning comes and the Holy One appears. Undoubtedly, there's this future aspect to it where the nations will come, they will pay homage to the king in recognition of his rule, and that's what he pictures here, right? They come, they're with joy, they clap their hands, they shout, meaning ultimately they repent and trust, but here it carries a militaristic tone to it. In this section, it speaks to utter triumph over every single enemy. He subdues the people under us and all nations under our feet. What does that do but drive them to a proper fear? Or that's at least what it's intended to do. right? It's a recognition of saying, if God is with them, who the heck can go against them? Make no mistakes about it. If you will not come to the Lord on the basis of love... The idea is that fear will do. If you're terrified, that will do. Inevitably, fear must give way to perfect love, but fear will do at first. You should have a proper fear of the Lord. You should have a recognition that infinite power rests in his being and waits to be harnessed simply for the fullness of wrath to be poured out for all eternity. And that idea should utterly terrify you. It should utterly shake you. It should cause you to shudder and tremble at the undeniable reality that God is poised to even act with a swift and terrible vengeance, and if you were not in Christ, you shall be swept away by the fullness of his fury. Ultimately, though, what it's driving you all the more to do is that fear should give way to worship. Rather than be subdued, come and worship the king. That is why the command and even the warnings are present. God is the great king of all the earth. In his hands are both life and death, and it is simply a matter of which hand is stayed. Is the hand of death reserved for you, or is the hand of life reserved for you? He says the hand of death is reserved for all who are his enemies, and every man is born an enemy of God due to sin, and yet it need not be that way. It doesn't have to end that way. The call to worship God as he is due is ultimately a call to embrace God as he is. The beautiful reality is that the enemy of the king can indeed become his friend, but they must bow down. They must worship. Verse two, it says, they must worship the king, again, because he reigns over all the earth. Verse three, they must worship the king because he reigns over all peoples verse 4, which we now see, they must worship the king because the Lord Most High reigns over Israel. Notice what the psalmist says here. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob whom he loves. And again, the specific context of this is seeing god 's reign in light of him giving the promised land to the israelites that 's their inheritance that he 's referring to here. The inheritance and even the glory of Jacob all refer back to this covenant promise that he gave to the patriarch, which were the same promises given to both Abraham and Isaac before Jacob. Now God would indeed multiply them more than the stars in the heavens, right, but he also gave them the land as their inheritance, and that 's partly what he 's referring to here. But notice how even here, the psalmist frames all of this in light of God's sovereign choice. Notice, just simply look down with me at the text here. He says, it is not the Israelites who chose God. It's not the Israelites who chose the land. But it was God ultimately who cast them out, the Canaanites, out of the land. It was God ultimately who chose their inheritance for them. It was God ultimately who gave this, this glory of Jacob to those whom he loves. It was an expression, in other words, of God's sovereign right as king to set his favor and love upon those whom he loves. Not a different people, but for these people. So every time they are seeing victory, they are seeing God's confirmation where he set his love and ultimately his covenant upon these people. The land was given them as their inheritance. By his sovereign choice, then they would remain in that land. Every time they saw defeat, however, they would be left to wonder is God confirming that, even though we are his people, even though we are Israelites, that he could remove us out of the land just as he gave it to us to begin with? Well, you've seen in some psalms that we've already touched on that that was indeed the case, but ultimately the reality is that he's still showing them, again, all of it is by his sovereign choice and favor upon them, and not ultimately on the basis of them, right? They, they could stand to be judged and cast out of the land at various different points, which we find in the Old Testament, But ultimately, it rests securely on the promises of God. The emphasis is not upon Israel, is what I mean to say. It's upon God's sovereign right as the king to do as he pleases and to to showcase his love to a people that do not deserve it. Israel is simply a microcosm, then, of God's authority over all of the earth. That's the main point of this verse here. It's God's exclusive right to set his favor upon those whom he pleases. It's God's exclusive right to set his love upon whom he pleases and to bless whom he pleases. Of course, the opposite of this is equally as true. It is God's exclusive right to hate whom he will hate and to curse whom he will curse. It is, after all, Jacob whom the Lord loved and Esau who the Lord hated. It was those who cursed Israel whom the Lord cursed. The point of all this being, it is purely on the God, our basis of God's sovereign choice that he plucked this nation out of all nations and set his favor and love upon them and gave them their inheritance. The expression of his sovereignty, therefore, culminates in this covenant. For Israel, this is an expression of his love. It's, Nothing they earned, but for the nations, they see this divine favor resting upon these people and the idea is that they are to take warning, right? If he is pleased to give his good gifts to whom he loves and does so on the basis of his sovereign choice, they are called to simply recognize that God has done so. They are called to recognize that God has set his favor upon these people and in his sovereignty, he's going to ensure that his outcome is ultimately reached. That's the idea here those who bless Israel, again, this is a curse back in Deuteronomy 28. Those who bless Israel are found to be blessed, but those who curse Israel are what? They're cursed, right? That's to rise up and then seek to usurp this place of God's chosen people ultimately is an expression of warfare against the king. That's the idea being shown here. Right, If you are looking to come against Israel, he's saying you're coming against the king. God has covenanted with us. God has not shown his particular favor upon the rest of the nations at this point. And rather than rise against Israel, they are to submit themselves under Israel. That's the idea here. Israel is the one nation guaranteed an inheritance in the promised land. They are the one through whom all of the Abrahamic blessings will flow. And that will indeed include all the earth one day. But for now, what he's saying is, look, you are not to make warfare against God's chosen people. In much the same way today, it applies in some sense where you can see that God's love rests upon his people in the church. He has secured our heavenly inheritance. And so the idea is that no enemy ultimately shall prevail against God's chosen people. But there's a warning there too. If you come against God's people, what happens? God will judge. God will do what is right. There's a reason why the martyrs cry out from heaven. Why have you not yet avenged our blood? The idea, again, is that God is over all of the earth. God is over Israel in particular here. But for us, we know that God is also over the church. He is over all of the people of God. Thus, the implicit warning is seen. If you come against God's people, you ultimately are making war against the creator. All of God's earth is just that, it is God's. He will give it to whom he pleases. He will take it from whom he pleases. Every man, woman, and child, therefore, is to pay homage to this king who gives and takes just as he desires. He not only expresses dominion over all the earth, he not only reigns over all people, he reigns over his people. He reigns over his people. And at the end of all days, the inheritance that he has pledged to us is that all the nations shall be in our possession. We will be given a new heavens and a new earth, and all the earth will be in our possession. We will rule and reign with Christ. I mean, that's an undeniable reality. And set in the backdrop of this psalm, there is no mistake about what it's saying At the end of all days, God will be king. God will be the one lifted high and above every other thing. We will join him and worship him and praise him just as we are supposed to do. But there is no question of authority. There is no question of dominion and whose kingdom will reach to the ends of the earth. It will not be any kingdom on this earth. And that is a guarantee. What that means is simply every single kingdom that you see in the here and now is ultimately going to be swallowed up in God's kingdom. His is the one kingdom that will rule for all eternity. Mankind will either, therefore, give him the glory that he is due and worship him, or they shall fall just as the nations fall. No amount of kicking and screaming, no amount of fist shaking, no amount of willful rejection will change that God is king. He is the rightful sovereign He is the one who sits enthroned above it all and will have his kingdom. The entirety of the psalm thus far has simply emphasized different aspects of this. Every bit of them are, though, swallowing around this idea. Or not swallowing, that's a terrible word to use for that. Every one of them are revolving around this idea that he is king, he is sovereign. But they ultimately culminate in the reality that we see in verse 5. The Lord Most High reigns from his throne. Look with me and see what he says. He says, God has ascended. He's talking about the throne here. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Well, the picture given here is that there is this triumphant king who has finally come to sit on the throne and exercise ultimate and absolute authority. Now, it is not that God has been absent of authority all the while, but simply that as he takes his rightful place as the mighty conqueror, all the nations, all the enemies are subdued. That's the idea, is that they've finally been done away with completely, and now he has climbed the throne to sit. He is no longer making war with the nations, he has already simply vanquished every foe in his sight. And as he sits upon the throne, the people gathered around him are his friends, are those who pay homage to the king, and they do so with much joy. They know that the one who sits on the throne is worthy. For Israel, though they have had earthly kings, even good kings, I mean, picture David, right? He is the embodiment of a good king. They innately recognize that the one true king of Israel is God himself. Right? That's something no other nation possesses. It's the same for us. God is ultimately king. No matter who the sitting president is, whether you like him or not, it really doesn't matter. Ultimately, God is king. This is something that no other people group possesses. And so the idea is that you celebrate the very fact that the king enthroned is the king of all the earth. He is the one who is ultimately worthy of, Israel is doing that here. God is the one who presides over his kingdom and his people, and they see this, and so their their earthly participation in this celebration is ultimately a simple echoing or a foreshadowing of all the celebration that is in heaven over God's rule. Again, the idea is that his kingdom knows no bounds, and in all things, he is pictured as the sovereign one, the triumphant one, the one who is far greater than even the best of the best of the best of earthly kings. His authority is matchless. His rule is perfect, and perfect justice and equity go forth at the command of his mouth. His kingdom, again, knows no boundaries. The extent of his peace reaches to every single realm on all creation. In every conceivable way, the people rest secure, knowing that he is the king, He's the king over all the earth. He's the king of all peoples. He's the king even of his own chosen people. But this king is the one who reigns forever and ever on his throne. Imagine just that. I mean, you and I have seen nothing but wicked kings in in much of our life, right? Imagine one who is perfect, and then you get to submit under his rulership forever. Right? No war, no petty games, no politicking, none of that. He's just king. He's just king, and he says, Welcome to my kingdom. You are my beloved son or daughter. You will reign in my kingdom. Even though you do not deserve every, any bit of it, you have now been grafted in. I, that's incredible. The idea is that he's not merely the one who rules over all in physical creation, but the one who rules over every aspect of even the spiritual realm. All things in existence, therefore, are governed by and for this God. In all things, they will yield to his ultimate authority. And again, think of this in light of the gospel that you and I profess to love. In the mystery of all mysteries, God, who is the sovereign one, who is the one who is over every aspect of creation, the one who rules it with might and authority, he stepped down in humility to take on flesh and ransom us. This was the plan from the very beginning. Christ embodies the ultimate aim and perfections of God's rule in the cross. He not only showed us his mastery over creation, right? He could come down as God himself and come in the flesh. He showed his mastery over creation even as he performed the mightiest of miracles with the greatest of ease. But he showed his mastery over sin. He showed us dominion and authority over Satan and the demonic realm. There was not one demon who, even looking upon him, didn't do anything but quake and shake in terror. For they knew their end was set. And yet, with the greatest of ease, he cast them out. And he even gave that authority over to the apostles. And yet, the greatest of all these things, the greatest of all these things, is Christ even showed his dominion and authority over death itself. Death was powerless to the king. Just just contemplate the magnitude of how amazing it is in God that in him, in his infinite perfections and in his infinite majesty, that he sits upon the heavenly throne and rules literally over all things, all things. Then think how incredible it is that this God came down in the flesh and died in your place. The matchless king above all. Came as an infant and died. That's incredible. From the very beginning, though, all of it is demonstrative or demonstrative of his ultimate authority over everything. Even the even that he's showing, I'm I'm the king. Come and worship. If God wanted to, it was his intrinsic right, beloved. He could have sent us all to hell. He didn't have to send Christ. In the fullness of time he did. But what I mean to show is simply that in God's sovereign choice, he could have elected to just wipe us all out. It would have been his prerogative to do so. We would have been worthy of that. He could have simply wiped us all out as Adam and Eve chose rebellion instead of loyalty because he was king even then. He could have easily done away with Israel and all of their rebellion, and he could easily do away with you and I and all of our rebellion. But in God's infinite perfections and sovereignty, he instead chooses a people for himself. He instead chooses a people for himself, and he gave them Christ. And then to Christ, he gives these people as his own possession. As surely as the word, our world plunged into chaos and death and destruction under the sheer weight of sin, he secured his authority over all of it, through the expression of pure, undefiled love. That's the incredible thing about God's authority and his majesty. He showed it through pure, undefiled, sovereign love. And that will be shown to us throughout all eternity. Out of all who have come and gone on this earth, Christ alone has proven to be the worthy one. He will alone continue to be the one who is worthy. He is the one who will be worthy to break the seals. He is the one who will be worthy to sit on the throne of David. He is the only one worthy of ruling the nations. He is the only one worthy of shattering the rebellious nations with a rod of iron. He is the only one worthy because he secures peace. He is the king. It's not even an effort for him to do so. But beloved, in light of all of this, he is the one that is worthy of worship. The simple reason for why that he is worthy is that he is king over all. And yet how good and amazing, again, is his rule and reign. He's not merely a good king. He is a perfect king in every single way. And so the proper response to these foundational truths of God being king in literally every single manner is worship. It's doxological It is engaged in praise. And that's what he's now going to show us through the rest of this psalm. So look with me now at verses six through seven, where we see the psalmist now direct our hearts to sing praises to this one who is worthy. Notice he says here, Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing praises with a skillful song. What do you think God wants us to do, beloved? Five, five times, right? I mean, five times there's this singular command. It's repeated and given to all the earth. Sing praises to the sovereign one and king. And the, the emphasis is quite intentional. It's not simply that it's just a non-negotiable as we've already seen, but that people are created with this express purpose of worshiping God. He highlights, though, how glorious and how great this God truly is. Five times you were commanded to sing his praises. But again, notice the reasons why we are given for why we should sing praise to God. Again, it is purely because he is king. Sing praises to God, sing praises to our king. Sing praises for God is the king of all the earth. Right? When we come to worship the king, we do so out of an awareness of the fact that he is king. This is our proper response as creatures before our creator. Worship is not designed to suit your particular preferences, or your music styles, or your tastes, or even for your own pleasure, or mine, by the way. It's not designed for the unbeliever. In no sense is it designed to cater to humanity. Instead, it's all designed to cater to the one who is worthy, to the one who is the king. In other words, worship is simply designed to exalt and to please God himself. The whims and the fancies of men need not apply. They need not factor into the equation. We worship God for who he is on the basis of what his word has revealed in the manner that he has prescribed, and we do so for his glory. None of us factor into that equation. It's not for our glory. It's for his glory. But notice it's not merely that we sing praises to the God on the basis of who he is. We're to sing skillful praises. And he says, God is worthy of excellent and skillful praise, again, because he is king over all the earth. The idea is that we ought to respond then in an appropriate manner. Now, the, the command here to sing God's praises with a skillful psalm is that it's a wisdom word, meaning it's, it's to be born out of a proper reflection of theology or truth, if you will. It must be well done, but it must be true. The idea is that it transfers or translates to prudent or wise or having insight when he talks about doing this with skill. The specific intent behind it is that as we sing praises to God, it is to be well thought out, but ultimately it must conform to the very word of God that he has given us. Wise praise then must live high, a proper theology of God. It must lift up who God is, what he has done, and what he has promised to do. In other words, a skillful psalm or one ones that we might sing as psalms or hymns are simply ones that encompass all of biblical truth. That's why we're so darn picky about the songs we sing here, because we want to make sure from start to finish every single one of them exalts what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what is right about our King. It also lifts up the idea that these things are, are beautifully written. Right it's not merely that we're going to play a disordered song of truth no it actually must be skillful in that sense too and the idea is that in metrical form in musical arrangement in poetic skill all of these things the lyrical depth and beauty of God's word in other words match the actual song right it should be a good song and the reason again is because we're singing praises to the king It's designed to lift up the God who has not only given us all of truth, but it is designed to lift up the God who has given us music as well. He is worthy of all praise purely on the basis of who he is, but he is worthy of the most excellent praise we can stand to muster because he is the king. He is the God who has given us truth and beauty, and therefore everything we do is a simple reflection of that reality. Well, what often happens in the broader Christian world, though, is that the exact opposite of this takes place, doesn't it? What happens is that we have incredibly beautiful arranged music, and yet fluff meaningless lyrics. Right? If you, if you remove the name of God from half of the popular music or the songs that play on the radio today for Christian songs, if you remove simply the name of God, what you find is often just a campy, badly arranged, secular love song. Nine out of ten times, that's what you find. And yet the reality is that a skillful and wise application of biblical truth, if it's absent from praise, biblically speaking, it is not proper praise. It is not skillful. It is not wise. It does not exalt God as it should. This is why I simply say, if you want to know where a church stands, what they believe, what they hope in and everything, listen very, very closely to what songs they sing. Just listen to the songs they choose. But again, more than all of this, it's, it's the larger point that I'm specifically trying to drive to is that as we teach one another psalms and hymns and songs, we are lifting up pure Truth. That's why we do it. It has a doxological effect through the entire body of Christ, and especially as our church here, we are teaching one another in those excellent things that God has chosen to reveal to us. Every Sunday morning, it should enter into our minds to not only sing robustly and to sing well, as well as we can, or to clap as well as we can, but the idea is that we ought to be contemplating the richness of what we are singing to one another. If we don't, it's just lip service. But we ought to be thinking heavily upon the songs or the songs that are chosen for that day. Why are they chosen? Why do the lyrics say what they do? Is my heart soaring with it as it should? If not, why not? That's the proper expression of praise in all these things, is that this is simply a foretaste, if you will, of what all of heaven will be. So why on earth are we here and now absent mindedly singing if that happens to be the case? Look, there's no rebuke there in what I'm trying to say there. My, my point is simply to say that we ought to be a people who contemplate the rich theological significance of the words we sing to one another. Because whether or not we realize it, we are singing truth to one another, and we are singing to our king. We are singing to our king. And that's what we will do for all eternity. But imagine even that. You have one people, voices lifted up in one song, in one common language, joined together in unison with all the heavenly host as we proclaim the excellencies, the glory, the majesty, and the splendor of the King who reigns over all. Well, the final two verses here just bring this reality home even more. But they add another dimension to why the King is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. He says, God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. It begins with a declaration. Notice again, verse eight, God reigns. The statement is made in what's called a prophetic perfect. And what that is, if you don't particularly care to know the in-depths of the language, all it means is that it is a declarative statement that shows a naturally concluding reality. What I mean by that is it says God reigns. And what that means is that ultimately will be that God reigns in the end too, It's not that he just reigns in the here and now. It's not that he will just reign one day. From here on out, from all of eternity, God reigns. He will reign in the end just as he has always reigned. In the immediate sense, they can look beyond their circumstances as far as the Israelites are concerned. They can see the victories over all the different nations and say, this is but a foretaste of all that is to come because God will subdue every last enemy. God will reign over every corner of the earth. And so it's alluding to the fact that at the end of all days, the decisive victory belongs to God. That's what it's showing us here: is that At the end of all days, his sovereign authority over all people, over all the earth, is an undeniable reality. It is certain. No matter how much anybody wants to say it will never come, it will come. It will come like a thief in the night, or in the night, but it will come. The psalmist then declares God sits on his holy throne. And here's the same reality being presented to us, but in a slightly different way. It portrays God as the one who rules ultimately from heaven. Again, he sits above it all. He rules from on high, far above every other thing in creation, and therefore all things are under his feet. Again, undeniable reality. God reigns now, God will reign in the end, and even in the here and now, he is above it. It's not a matter of when, or I should say, not a matter of if God will subdue his enemies, but when. That's all it's saying. He's already poised and ready to act, and he's saying that ultimately God will do so. He will reign over every bit of the earth. And yet the beautiful reality is now that we can see in verse 9, it's not just that God subdues his enemies, right? There's an aspect to this where The promises given to Abraham are being realized here too. What he's saying is that there's actually nations that were outside of the original covenant that are now coming into that covenant. In other words, it's foreshadowing the Gentiles, which is you and I. Anybody who's not a Jew in this room is a Gentile, by the way. What he's alluding to here is the reality that God has chosen, again, a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and he will have his inheritance. It's a guaranteed result. Look at what he says in verse verse 9. He says the princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of God. They have assembled themselves as the people of God or of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God and he is highly exalted. Again he reiterates that same foundational truth that we have heard from the very beginning, but everything is given in light of the fact that this king is now reigning over the earth. And these foreign peoples are now coming and submitting themselves to him as their God. Right? They have come as the people of the God of Abraham. They have attached themselves to his rule and to his reign. And they have joined in that incredible celebration of the fact that God is the worthy king on the throne. Again, all of it is foreshadowing the inclusion of the Gentiles. Right? This happens long before Christ comes on the scene. But in the Old Testament, there's all sorts of glimmers of this hope throughout it. There's these foreign nations who will forsake their false gods. They will forsake their false ways. They will come to worship the one true God and join with the people of God. And ultimately, they will become his people. They will become sons and daughters of the Most High. And this is all a work that is happening in the here and now as you think about it. God is actively at work bringing a people of his own sovereign choice to himself for the purpose of praise and glory. That's ultimately what this is all wrapped up under here. That righteous king that is portrayed in this psalm is ultimately going to be Christ. The people of the God of Abraham that are coming, these foreign nations and rulers, are all joining into Israel. Together we are the people of God, and from the very beginning to the very end of all creation, those people will be the ones that sing before him for all eternity. But the idea is that they come together under the common banner of one king who reigns supreme forever and ever. In one unified voice, they sing of his praises and no other. The psalmist, again, gives a reason for why all of this is so. He says the shields of the earth belong to God, and he is highly exalted. The shields of the earth is simply talking about all the mighty warriors, right? Everyone who comes to battle, all of them are his. They're his armies. Even if they want to try and stand and fight, they're his armies. Nothing's going to escape his grasp. But he says even here that these men are coming to him in joy, in celebration of the one that he is king. But at the end of it all, he ends it much like he begins. God is the one who is highly exalted. This is a reason why the Gentiles will come. Ultimately, God is the one who is highly exalted. This is the reason why God chose Israel. Again, God is the one who is highly exalted. This is why he is king, beloved. He sits above it all. He is the one who created it from the very beginning and will sustain it to the very end. And at the end of all days, he will give a new heavens and a new earth and all of God's people will sing for joy because we will no longer taste of sin and death and Satan. What we will taste of is pure goodness and beauty and truth in everything for all eternity. We will be under submission to the one who rules overall with absolute authority, but the one who rules in love and peace and mercy and ultimate justice. To the end of his government shall know no bounds. To the increase of his peace shall know no bounds. From that day forward, from the day in which he steps on upon the throne of David and subdues all of his enemies underfoot, there will be nothing but utter, complete perfection. That's the beauty of what this psalm teaches us here. He's saying that the enemies will be subdued. God will usher in his kingdom. He will rule from his throne. It's an undeniable reality. Undeniable reality. You can fight against it or you can join us in worship and praise to the king who is worthy. That's what's being lifted up here. All of created order will inevitably go the way of praise. Anyways, it just, it has to. They will either bow the knee in submission to God as they are cast into the lake of fire forevermore, or they will bow the knee before all that takes place, and they will join him as his children for all eternity. That's the reality of what it means to be King he shall have his way in the end we are just men we picture ourselves much differently though don't we but we are just finite men and women the sovereign one is king so what do we what do we do with this what are some implications i want to try and make my way through this relatively quickly but the in, the implications of this really are astounding I mean, they're astounding if you can wrap your mind around it. It is in light of the fact that all things will be under submission to the king that the psalmist calls all people to worship. says, so it's in light of the fact that this is the inevitable end of all creation that you should come and worship the king. He guarantees that the kingdom shall not end. He guarantees that his reign shall not end. Therefore, Worship. The call to believe the gospel is a call to worship. First and foremost, the gospel is about God getting the glory that he is due. That's why we preach it. That's why we bring it to those who are unreached peoples. We want more worshipers. We want more giving glory to God. Every time God brings a sinner to repentance and faith, all of heaven literally stops and rejoices. Just one sinner... The angels sing of God's praises. Think of what will happen in the halls of eternity. If you're not preaching the gospel to unbelievers in your life, what you are declaring for people, regardless, is that you don't want to see God get more glory. He calls us to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? Because he wants more glory. So preach it. Secondly, what this psalm teaches us is God is chiefly concerned with glory. Over and above all things, God desires to be glorified, and it is our obligation as creatures to glorify him, especially as Christians. Our purpose is to worship our creator. All of life is worship. It's not simply what we do on a Sunday morning, though don't misunderstand me. This is vitally important. But if you sense that when you leave here that the worship stops, you've already missed the boat, so to speak. You've already failed to understand that you were designed to bring God glory in every single aspect of life. It is not merely Sunday mornings. It is work. It is relationships. It is your work ethic. It is your business practices. It is your finances. It is your free time and your busy time, your study of the word, your watching of TV. It is your prayer and everything else in between. It is Even your time changing dirty diapers. Every single one of them gives you the occasion to bring God glory. Every single one of them is the occasion for worship. How we do that is not only by giving thanks to God in the midst of the minutiae and mundane aspects of life, but that we submit everything under his commandments and his word. In other words, if we want to glorify God and bring him the praise that he is due, we have to simply submit ourselves to his word. We live with ultimate reference to the fact that he is king and king over every little detail of our life. If you are known more for anything else other than the fact that Christ is your king, if you are known more for those things, beloved, I'm going to put it bluntly, you are a glory hog. Let your glory instead be found by stepping out of the way so God gets the glory in all of it. Let the thing that you are known by be Christ. Let it be his magnification, his exaltation. Thirdly, it teaches us God is king over everything at this very moment and he will continue to be king. Nothing is outside of his rule and reign. Absolutely nothing. But all of it will be turned over to Christ as he steps upon the throne and rules forever. And nothing can be done to stop that. Nothing can be done to stop that. Again, there will be no end to the increase of his government and of peace. We will either worship the king or we will not. But even as those who must bow the knee forcefully later, you will worship the king, but it'll just be simply before you go to hell. That's about as brutal as I could make it, but I want you to hear that because it's incredibly important. That's my final point, inevitably, is that God will get the glory in the end either way. He will get the glory either way. Our purpose is to bring Him glory, but He will get it regardless. The call for you today is not to wait until you must bow the knee, but to profess. And put your place of hope in joy and love in Christ, in Christ alone. Again, it is to worship the king, for he is worthy. It is to worship the king because he is king. The wonderful reality is he's not merely king, he is a good king. So at this time, I'm going to pray and invite the band back up to sing one last song. If you'll join with me in prayer, please. Father, we do thank you that you are incredible in all of your rule and reign, that you are over all of creation, that this is a thing of much joy and peace and stability for those who are in Christ. But I pray now for those who do not know you, that they would see this. They would see this and be brought to a sense of godly jealousy, a desire for not only your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace, but all the good things that you have promised us, but more than all, you that they would come before you, Father, in order to have you, that they would come before Christ to have Christ, that in all things they would see our triune Lord as one who is worthy of worship and praise and honor and glory from here on out through all eternity. May they not be ones who must be forced to bow the knee. May they come willingly this day and this day to love and to hear of all that you have done. I pray now that as we close out this service and close out uh, our week, that you would give us a mind to keep this in the forefront of our eyes and hearts and wills as we navigate just the minutia of life and that we wouldn't forget that you are king even in the small things, Father. That we would submit to your lordship but give great, great thanks over all that you have done. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.